You've caught us between series. I finished John and not yet made my way to Joel. So knocking out a couple of odds and ends in the series that, well, in between series right now, uh, we're preparing to nominate officers. And uh, I would lovingly suggest that there are a few things as important in the life of the church as nominating officers. In many cases, you can kind of see the trajectory of how the church is doing and or going to do by the quality of the men that are put in leadership. This is an effort to equip us for that process. So last week we looked at Acts chapter 6 and the foundation of the diaconate and the purpose of ministry. I gave you a loving and gentle cry for help to give men that would lead the way that we need to be led, that would shepherd and care. Now we look this week at elders, next week at deacons. This is God's word in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word. Father in heaven, your counsel is always wise for you are wise. We ask that you would give life and light to your word that we may understand. Give your help, we pray, that your spirit would work in us that we may believe and love and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Make sure I'm on. I don't know how much you followed it, but it's been a really bad month to be in Hollywood, hasn't it? I mean, my goodness, it's been a bad month. In case you don't read the news, I, one, envy you, um, and secondly, I encourage you. Uh, but if you followed anything about what's happening in um, the media, it has uh, come out that uh, Hollywood is not the pristine moral Uh, folks that we have always thought they were pretending to be. Uh, But it has turned out actually that it is a place of 
uh, what is it, no greater den of villainy that you could find. It's a place of sexual perversion and the, the abuse. The list is just staggering. I mean, every day it's another person, another person, another person, and you're like, will the list ever end? I mean, will the list ever? It's shocking. It's, it's staggering. Will the list ever end? Was it last week the head of FIFA got busted? And you're like, this is, I mean, it's, just, it's comical now how, how big the tragedy has become, how widespread, how evil it is. And to see the extent of the sexual perversion and to see the extent of the sexual abuse and to see the extent of the distrust and brokenness and destruction, it's called, is caused. And it's been interesting if you read the news, and again, I kind of feel obligated to, so I have an idea of what's happening, to see how many people are kind of longing, like, you know, it'd be great to just, you know, have a person that we, we just know that they're innocent. You know, I mean, to have a person that we could just look at and be like, surely it wouldn't be that guy. If there's anybody, it would never be George Takei. And no, no, it was him three days ago. No, you know, the, the list, it just spirals out of control. The passage we get to in 1 Timothy is a passage I would say now is, I mean, it's always relevant, it's always useful, it's always needed. Uh, but in light of the last month in American culture, this is proving to be so supremely significant. Because in so many ways, Hollywood functions as the elite of American culture. They are the Americans of the Americans. They, in many ways, think they should teach us and tell us how we should think and feel and act. I mean, that's why they take interviews about politics. It's funny, you don't have a high school education, much less college, but okay, that's fine. You can speak on politics. I'm not mad at you. That's your, that's your right. It's been given to you by our government. I can live with that. In contrast, here we find out what uh, the leadership of the church is supposed to be. And specifically the elders. And it's going to be a, a shocking contrast between what we've watched spiral out of control and out of control and out of control. Until we see what God's men are supposed to be. And we looked at last week, just a little bit briefly, how there are two offices in God's church, and certainly in the Presbyterian church in the way that we understand the scriptures. Uh, Verses 1 through 7 are going to talk about elders. Verses 8 through 13 are going to talk about deacons. And they're going to have very different roles. We saw them in Acts chapter 6. The elder's job is to shepherd the people and to be occupied with the word and with prayer. That is their job, my job. Word, sacrament, prayer. That's my ministry. The deacons are to be waiting on tables. They are to be taking care of the admin, the daily runnings of things, so that I and the other elders can do word and sacrament and prayer. And so we see what the qualifications are. And you think, okay, now this is interesting. What type of men... Does God want serving as the under-shepherds in his church, the elders in his church, the ones who, humanly speaking, are going to run the institution? 
And even before we get to the qualifications, I'm going to tip my hand and show the entire point of the sermon from the very beginning. The first point to even contemplate is that a spiritual kingdom gets spiritual leaders. The vice versa of that, depending on your political persuasion, you could say an earthly kingdom gets very earthly leaders. And boy, aren't we seeing that to be the case. A spiritual kingdom gets spiritual leaders, and Christ's kingdom is first and foremost a spiritual kingdom. You think about when he came to earth and as he's in his messianic ministry and he's proclaiming himself to be the Messiah, to be the Messiah, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and it's his kingdom and it's his kingdom and it's his kingdom and and it builds to this great Passover weekend. And he gathers just outside the town. They put him on a colt like they know Zechariah foretells. This is how the king of kings is going to enter Jerusalem. And as he enters in, they put palm branches down and everybody begins to sing Hosanna. And they have this magnificent coronation event for what they understand is the king of Judah. They get that. God's kingdom has arrived. And he gets into Jerusalem, and what do they all do? They're all like amped up, the crowd's all excited. I'm I'm, I'm curious, how is he going to kill Rome? I'm just really devastatingly interested. How is he going to, from Jerusalem, destroy Rome? I, I just can't wait to see. And so he comes into Jerusalem. Interestingly, where does he go? He doesn't go to the Roman garrison. He goes to the temple. Because his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And when he gets to the temple, what does he do? He throws all of the money changers out, yells at them, beats them, throws them away, clears the temple for worship, and then he goes home. And the crowd loses their minds. Because here we've been looking for this earthly kingdom. We've been looking for Rome to be overthrown. We've been looking for someone who will rule and reign in this place the way that we are accustomed to seeing nation states do it. We've seen Sparta, we've seen Athens, we've seen Rome. We're ready for Jesus town, whatever that is. We're ready for him to rule physically. And the disciples, we love them, continue to miss the point. Even gets into the book of Acts and they're like, is this, Jesus, is this finally when you're going to put your kingdom in? Like, is this when you kill Rome? I'm so, I'm so curious. Because, again, they're still looking for that earthly kingdom. And instead, it's a spiritual kingdom, which is wonderful because of the contrast. You see, a spiritual kingdom is not bound by nation states. Because if Christ's kingdom was bound by a nation state, it would have never made it to us. Well, maybe a couple Jews in the room. His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom that is spread throughout time and space. It's spread throughout the globe. It's spread throughout cultures, through different tongues and nationalities. There are no boundaries to where his kingdom reigns, but it's spread everywhere. That's why Jesus constantly reinforces, I'm not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. It's a different type of kingdom. And it's interesting, as his spiritual kingdom is taking place, as it's being implemented, he has one primary arena where that kingdom is displayed, where it is accomplished, and that is the church. 
You want to see where the kingdom of God is primarily located and revealed and displayed. Come to the church, the institutional, visible church. Now, interestingly, are they identical? Not entirely. We know that there are churches that pretend to be churches that aren't actually. We know that there are non-Christians that are members of Bible-believing churches. We we know it's not a one-to-one exactly. But we know this institution is the arena where Christ's spiritual kingdom is worked out. It's why Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to the apostles. It's why they're given the ability to discipline. And what is the type of discipline that we're allowed to do? It's spiritual discipline. I'm thankfully not allowed to you know, spank you when you disobey. That's not in my uh, ability set. And that's a good thing. Trust me, I'm really happy about that. It's a spiritual kingdom and it's spiritual authority. I'm allowed to stand in front of you and say, look, you're doing wrong. I mean, I allowed to, I'm allowed to stand in front of you and say, look, if you continue to do wrong, you, you're going to endanger your soul. And I'm actually even allowed to stand in front of you and say, look, you've continued to do wrong. I don't believe you're a Christian at all. But I'm not allowed to throw you in jail for that, and I'm glad about that. This is the arena where that spiritual kingdom is worked out. We're given God's authority. We're given God's message. We're given the marks of God's presence. We're given the sacraments. We're given all of those great gifts to the church. So that if you want to hear the words of this spiritual kingdom, where do you come? You come to hear the preaching of the word in a Bible-believing church. It would then therefore make sense that you pick officers that fit the nature of the kingdom they lead in. A spiritual kingdom gets spiritual leaders. We don't use the standard criteria that the world uses. If you have to pick leaders today, what what do you pick? What do you look at? What features do you get? We've got to be proactive. and Preferably we like folks, guys that are wealthy because we know they know how to manage wealth. Preferably people that have been wealthy for a long time because they know how to not lose it. We, we have all of these categories of things that we like to evaluate by. We look at resumes. We looked at gifting. We have interviews. We have a process that the world follows for hiring, for determining leadership. And they're all external, tangible kind of things that can be measured. And it's interesting when we get to the list here. It is first and foremost a spiritual list. Now I will shamelessly make a plug even before getting to the text as a pastor. I don't get a vote in this process. Meaning you nominate your men, I train them, and then you choose them. And I would just simply say shamelessly, my preference would be men who are godly and dumb than men who are brilliant and hard-hearted. I said that last week, I'll say it again this week. I will take godliness over any other attribute a man can have for office. If he's not skilled at anything else, that's fine. I can live with that. I cannot live with hard-heartedness because I can't fix that. I can't compensate for it, and all that becomes is a liability to me and to this church long term. Now, notice the, the, the way this works out. 
spiritual men and a spiritual kingdom. Paul begins with saying he's trustworthy. This is his reoccurring thing to kind of reinforce his punch on these things for Timothy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's interesting, every time just about Paul talks about officers, he always addresses the issue of desire. They've got to have desire to do it. If they don't have the desire to do it, they're not going to be good officers. So some of the men that you nominate, I'm going to go sit down and talk with them and say, look, you've been nominated for office. And they're going to say, I love that. I'm so glad for that. I don't want to do it. And you know what? They're right. They don't want to do it. Don't do it. It's not worth it. That's, that's not what we're looking for. Opening just kind of very beginning, the guy's got to want to do the task. The Lord provides the fancy term as an internal calling, a desire to want to do what he's called to do. But then verse 2 continues and he begins first with kind of the big picture title and then all of the little things that are the outworkings. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. That's your overarching title. What is the condition of the men that are qualified to be elders? They must be above reproach. And then he's going to give a list which is going to show four separate arenas where that above reproach thing gets worked out. Four separate arenas, areas where you can say, okay, what does it mean to be above reproach? First, he begins and kind of ends with the same thing. It's brackets on either side, gives us an idea of how important it is. How is he to be above reproach? The husband of one wife, and then skipping down four and five, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? First arena or realm where this spirituality is to be displayed is in the home. How a man conducts himself in his home is the first area where he is to, to display this character of God, and it makes a great deal of sense. First, the church and the home, that line is constantly blurred in the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, they were very much overlapping. In the New, they overlap, but not quite as much. Why? Because we are the family of God. It's described in family language, this church thing. And so, of course, it would make sense that if a man can figure out how to manage his actual biological family, he will be able to manage his spiritual family. And certainly that's part of it. In fact, actually, in dealing with his children, it's more than simply just having them obey. And this, is, again, gives you the, the idea, the tenor of the spirituality of this. He is to manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive, but with all dignity. Not a man whose children obey because they're terrified of their father. Not a man whose children obey because they're mortified, because they serve out of fear and an unholy terror, but a man who earns the respect of his children even as he disciplines them in obedience. 
A man whose purity is such that it's reflected in his relationship with his wife. Again, what a contrast with Hollywood these days, huh? The leaders of the church are supposed to have purity as such that their sexuality, their family relationships are shaped by being above reproach. There's no questions that can be asked about his relationship with his wife. No questions that can be asked about his relationship with his children. He manages his household well. Spiritual man. It doesn't just stop with the, the household, the family, that's one. But then next is it deals with the self. His godliness is such that he manages himself well. He continues on the list. Husband of one wife, okay, we got that. That's the family thing. He's sober-minded. He's self-controlled. Skip down a little bit. Not a lover of money. His relationship inside his own brain, inside his own skull is such that he is shaped by the truth of God and is a godly man. He's sober-minded. He's not prone to excess. He's not prone to fly off the handle. He's not prone to extremes. He's solid. He's grounded. He's dependable. He's self-controlled. He's not prone to being chaos and uh, not able to say no to things or to himself or to his desires or his passions. Verse 3, not a drunkard. He is not addicted to wine. He's able to consume but not be dominated by. Now, I'm, I'm going to say this is actually stronger than simply saying he's not a drunk. And that's honestly not a very high bar to jump over. It's more of his relationship with consumption is balanced. Consuming what? Well, yeah, exactly. That's the point. <laughs> his relationship with dessert. His relationship with caffeine. His relationship with wine. He's not dominated by his passions. He's not out of control. He's not a lover of money. He's content even in the status that God has provided for him, and he's not dominated by these things. Third arena is in the church itself. Already, prior to him becoming an officer, he's already displaying the spiritual characteristics in relationship to the church. He is, back to verse 2, respectable. So that when he interacts with the people of God, they look at him and say, this is a guy that's worth respect. He's hospitable. Now, uh, we tend to think of hospitality as having people over in your own home. Yes, no. I mean, that is an example of it, but that's not the definition of hospitality. And the way we know that's not the definition of hospitality is because Jesus didn't do it. Jesus is very hospitable. Jesus meets all the qualifications for office, and we know he didn't have people over to his own home. How do we know that? Because he didn't own a home. (laughs) He invites us eventually to his home, but when he was here as a Messiah. You know, this is instead the frame of mind of being welcoming and inclusive to the people of God. 
so that when the church gets around him, he's, he's like a magnet that pulls them in as opposed to pushes them away. He's not repelling, but drawing in the people of God. He's able to teach. Now, interestingly, this sermon's going to be a lot like the one next week. Spoil it a little bit. Elders and deacons have very similar qualifications. This is one that's unique to elders. They have to be able to teach. Now, does that mean that all of them have to be able to stand up here and preach the same way that I do? Thankfully, no. It means that they need to be able to articulate the truths of the faith and have the mind to be able to think through the realities of God's word. That may mean that they're able to teach BBS, teach Sunday school. Great. Teach children. Great. Everyone has different gifts. Great. That's wonderful. Doesn't stop there, though. Not violent, but gentle. Oh, this is a doozy right here. That the way that the man interacts with those around him is marked by gentleness and tenderness and not violence or harshness. What a beautiful reflection of God Almighty and how he treats his people, treating them with kindness and like they're delicate creatures and not quite so abrasively. Not quarrelsome. And this is, again, kind of obvious, but do do you want a leader who's going to fight with everyone? I mean, it's the danger of electing a contrarian. Fight with everyone for the sake of the fight. Being careful that we pick leaders that are not quarrelsome, that are not looking for a fight, not constantly picking them. We have enough fights in the world today. We don't need to add to them needlessly. And then finally, fourth area he's showing this above reproach in his family he's showing it in his self he's showing it in his relationship to the church and the last one you'll hear some folks say you know what we should make him an officer and he'll grow into it please never do that please never do that because you know why the vast majority of the time they never do All they do is drag the leadership down with them. Relationship with the church. And then fourthly, his relationship with the world outside the church. Verse 6. Must not be a recent convert. Why? (laughs) Because the devil's going to come after him. I tell this to all the guys who go for officer training is uh, be ready. The second that officer training begins, persecution, spiritual warfare will begin for you as a family. I guarantee it. Never watched a guy go through officer training with me that has not said that was one of the worst seasons of my life because of situations outside of my control and the devil tempting. It is brutally difficult to be an officer in God's church. It's staggeringly unpleasant to get to that point. My licensure and ordination trials, the spiritual temptations were shocking. I will not tell them now because we put my sermons on the internet. And honestly, I don't want that recorded there. The devil comes after the men of God and they have to be ready to handle that. You don't put new converts in because they're not ready for the fight. They'll get shredded. They'll lose. Even so much so, verse 7, moreover, he must be thought well of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace. He has to have a reputation as such that his level of above reproach extends even to the pagans. So when the pagans look at him, they may say, you know what? I think he's, I mean, he's wrong, but at least he's consistent. 
He treats his people well. I got to respect that. His neighbors look at him and go, man, he, he's a good guy. I may think, you know, I don't agree with what he says or maybe a little too uptight or whatever, but he's a good guy. I can live with that. You see, above reproach in four areas, family, self, church, and world. And you may think, man, that's a, that's a high standard. Yeah, actually, that's exactly right. You've got it figured out. If, you, if you're sitting here thinking as you listen, man, that, I mean, really, that's a high standard. Who can meet that? You understand the qualifications correctly at that point. You do not have the bar too low. I guarantee you that. I would maybe make one major application of this, uh, not just for us as we choose officers here, but for all of us as we think about just growing in grace. The American church, I think, the evangelical American church particularly, does a very good job of explaining that Jesus is the only way to salvation. I think we do a good job with that. We do an excellent job of explaining that all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's not a hard point to make anymore. Turn on the news. Think about your thought life over the last week. Tell me that you'd be okay with everybody knowing what you were thinking. No. We're quick to admit that now, that yet we've all done bad things and that we need salvation And I think the evangelical church has done a very good job of explaining the scriptures where it says the only hope for salvation is Christ and Christ alone. That King Jesus would step inside time and space and he would live a perfect life and he would die to pay for the sins of those people, his people, so that all the bad things that we have done would be paid for on the cross. And we've done a good job of recognizing that he was raised to victory And we've done a good job of recognizing that that victory extends to us in the life to come. But it would be my humble suggestion that maybe in the American Evangelical Church right now, we have not done a good enough job of explaining that that victory extends now. I mean, you look at these qualifications for office and you have to say, my goodness, I mean, that's a really high bar. To say for a man to be above reproach with no qualifiers. That's a hard thing. But I think more than anything, it's a testimony of how powerful our Savior is. That he can take men that have no ability to save themselves, take men who have no good thing in, in them inherently and say, look, the old is gone, the new is here, you are a new creature in Christ, and Christ is so powerful that he can make men to meet this. I think that's maybe a part that we've missed in evangelicalism is to be able to explain, look, the victory of Jesus is not just in the life to come. It's now as well. I mean, it's not yet full, but we already have it that I can have victory over sin now. I can have self-control now. I can live in his mercy and in his grace now. I don't have to wait till later. You see, that's actually a fuller picture of the gospel, isn't it? 
The forgiveness and redemption of Christ is so full and so big of a picture that it rechanges, it reshapes his people now and not just later. It's like we've forgotten the doctrine of regeneration, that when we're saved, he takes out that dead heart and gives us a new one that's living and beating so that we may live in obedience to him. It's the good news of the gospel. When I was at Covenant, I uh, streamlined my courses to try to get out of there as quickly as possible. I only took one course that was uh, not required for my major and minor. I took Marriage and Family Values with Dr. Henry Krabendam. And Dr. K, I've told stories of before, is an artifact and treasure from Covenant College. He's about nine and a half feet tall. Okay, not really. He's probably six, eight, maybe six, seven. He's a Dutchman. He was a professor when my in-laws were at Covenant. To give you an idea of how old he was by the time I had him. He was there when Nikki's parents were at Covenant. He's been a fixture at Covenant for, I don't know, 45 years, something crazy. Um, still teaching today, even though he's got to be close to 95. He's not young. He's a close talker. And being tall was a problem because you always talked at the top of your head when the great Dutch accent and his big point in marriage and family values, the whole point of the class was one thing. If you want to be married, be the kind of person that will attract the spouse you want. Already, you now work to be the kind of person that will attract the spouse that you want. If you want a godly woman, be a godly man, because otherwise she's going to say, I am not interested in that guy because he's a mess. So be a godly man. Put differently, maybe an illustration some of you might understand a bit more. You know, if you go fishing, you've got to fish with the right bait. And if you want to go catch catfish, you don't catch, you know, use flies that sit on the top of the water. You have to get something that gets down to the bottom where the fish are. If you want to catch, you know, trout, you don't give something that just hangs on the bottom of the, you know, bottom of the river. You use the right bait to catch the right kind of thing. Using that as an illustration really for us, the challenge, the application I would give is, look, if we want to be a healthy, vibrant, growing church, pick spiritual men. Because those are the men that will lead us. Be the type of church we want to be. Pick the kind of men that will lead us into the right thing. Why? Because Christ has told us to, and he promises to bless our obedience. But two is those are the men that are going to help us grow. Because they're spiritual men. And that's what we want to do as God's people here. We want to grow. May it be that we, God's people here, prove to be a contrast to Hollywood. We're there every day. It's a new revelation of destruction and deviancy. Every day it's a new revelation of somebody that, I liked that guy. What? Maybe the God's church is a little different here. Where instead, every day, it's a new revelation of godliness. A new illustration of gentleness. A new illustration of an elder being kind to someone and going, Oh, I marvel and delight at what God is doing. I promise if we do that, we will do well as a church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you instruct us, you teach us, and you shape us. Lord, may it be that all of the men of this church would be made to be this kind of man. A spiritual man, a man who is above reproach. 
whether or not we have that calling, whether or not we uh, are chosen to serve, whether or not we are officers in your church, may all of the men here be this kind of man, your kind of man, for the blessing of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.